so good to be with you and have you with us, um, especially if you're visiting us for the first time. I know I met a couple new visitors this morning. I pray that you will just feel incredibly welcomed and uh, blessed by your time with us. So this morning we are going to be in Mark chapter 15 together in just a moment. If you want to start turning there in your Bibles, we'll be studying Jesus' trial, crucifixion, and death. We're going to cover the rest of chapter 14 that we're skipping over this morning, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' arrest, and Peter's denial of Jesus at our Good Friday service this week, um, which is also going to be a deeply moving um, and meaningful time of remembrance together. And so I really hope and pray that you'll join us for that as well. Uh, we've got no shortage of, of opportunities to be together and worship um, together this week. And then, of course, there's next Sunday. We've been pushing so much and looking forward to when we get to celebrate our risen king together. And so uh, I just want to echo Donnie's pitch and the, the, the video and make one last impassioned plea to you that um, if you don't do it because of all the funny announcements or um, the conviction of the other announcements this week, if you don't do it to win our Egg the Town Challenge, because you won't, because uh, you know I'm competitive enough, that I will literally egg the whole town if I need to um, and invite people. If you don't do it for any of those reasons, I want to encourage you to invite people next week for Easter, um, because this is going to be just a really joyful, fun, enjoyable service of worship together. Um, your family, your friends, your loved ones, your neighbors, their, their testimony one day might simply start with simply enjoying church for the first time in their lives. Like, I thought church was supposed to be boring, and then I came to church at West Hills on Easter. Um, that could be how their testimony starts, but it all starts with an invitation. So I, I urge you um, to pray about who, who the Lord is leading you to invite this week. And just so you all know, too, when, as you're inviting, um, we're not typically a, a seeker-driven church here at West Hills, and for good reason. Um, but I just want to tell you, on, on Easter and Christmas, when I know that we're going to have lots of unbelievers here visiting for the first time, um, you, you can bet on me keeping things really simple, uh, really, really straightforward, and really positive, and just sharing Jesus with people. Um, I know that sometimes that can be a, a, a sort of hang-up in our minds when it comes to inviting friends. Is, you know, West Hills, praise the Lord, is a really uh, deep Bible-preaching church, um, and we, we don't just skim the surface like a lot of churches, and I know that's what a lot of y'all appreciate about us, but uh, we're going to keep it simple. We're just going to preach Jesus next week um, for our friends and our visitors, so know that when you're inviting. So uh, this morning, though, Mark 15, before we get the resurrection and, and chapter 16, uh, we go through the cross. And so would you stand with me as you're able? Um, this, we're we're going to read sections of all of chapter 15. This is a little bit of a longer passage. I've trimmed it for time's sake. I'll read it for us. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered Jesus up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them again, Then what shall I do with a man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from the distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult words to read, to hear, to be reminded of the depths of pain and anguish to which you went to save poor, wretched sinners like us. And yet this morning, we know that we don't worship a dead, defeated Savior, but a risen King. And even as we draw our attention to the cross this morning and we focus on that pain and that hurt, sin for that you died to atone for, for our sake. Um, we pray that you would instill us with hope, with confidence, with joy as we remember the goodness of Good Friday 
what you did for our sake. Father, now, would you open our ears, our eyes, our hearts and minds to hear the good news that you have for us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This chapter, Mark chapter 15, is all about the cross, a historical event, the central event in all of human history on that fateful Friday, 1989 years and seven days ago today. We now call it Good Friday because we know that the cross was essential to the good news of our salvation. No cross, no forgiveness of sins. It's that simple. No cross, no redemption, no reconciliation, no atonement, no justification, no pardon for sinners, no heaven, no eternal life, no hope, no chance for you and me. And so Mark 15 is first and foremost about Jesus and the good, albeit gut-wrenching thing that he did for us on that cross. And so we don't want to lose sight of that this morning, and we're going to put even more explicit emphasis and focus on that and on the cross on, on, at our Good Friday service this week. But what we see this morning is that even in the midst of that, of this difficult passage, Mark wants to draw our attention not only to the cross, but to these various reactions to the cross. We meet six different characters or groups of characters in this passage, each of whom responds to Jesus' crucifixion in a different way. And so, we're going to see this morning that while the cross is absolutely central, the way that we react to the cross is no less important. Let me say that again. That's your big picture takeaway this morning. The cross is everything. And the way that we react to the cross is everything. Okay? So we're going to survey the six possible ways in Mark chapter 15, that we can respond to the cross. Reaction number one is ambivalence. This is the reaction of Pontius Pilate in verses 6 through 15. Ambivalence is defined as uncertainty or fluctuation, especially when caused by inability to make a choice. That's the perfect word for Pontius Pilate's reaction. Pilate doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He interviews Jesus and concludes, I find no guilt in him. But the chief priests demand that he have Jesus crucified, so Pilate has him beaten as a compromise. And when that doesn't appease him, Luke's gospel tells us that Pilate sends Jesus to Herod instead. But Herod finds him innocent too and sends him right back. And by this time, the crowd is on the verge of all-out insurrection, and so Pilate tries one last Hail Mary effort to punt on Jesus. Aha, we've got this tradition at Passover where I release to you one prisoner, I'll release Jesus, everyone gets to go home happy. The crowd replies by shouting all the more, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate, in his, in his ambivalence, his fluctuating to avoid making a difficult choice, because he knows deep down that Jesus is innocent, and yet we know from history that Pilate is already on thin ice with the emperor Tiberius by this point because of his continual provocation of the Jews. And so Pilate needs a political win. He needs to gain the support of the people. And so what does he ultimately do in verse 15? It says, Pilate 
wishing to satisfy the crowd. It's a matter of political expediency. He delivered Jesus to be crucified. Matthew recalls that image of Pilate that we so often associate with him. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Perfect picture of ambivalence. Friends, I think that ambivalence is the most popular response to the cross in 21st century America. See, Pilate is not Annas or Caiaphas, the chief priest who hate Jesus and hatched the plan to kill him. Actually, Pilate would have preferred not to have had to deal with Jesus at all. He went to great lengths to try and avoid having to make any kind of decision on Jesus. And guess what? So do most unbelievers today. Most non-Christians today aren't Jesus-hating, baby-killing, prayer in public schools outlawing, gender-preferred pronoun mandating, radical crusaders. That is a very small, very vocal minority. Most, Christian, most non-Christians today are much more like Pontius Pilate. They would much rather simply be left alone and not have to deal with Jesus at all. They'd honestly rather you not invite them to Easter because that, that forces them to think about it. That forces them to make a decision. They would definitely prefer you not follow up with them this week with a personal phone call to check if they got the Easter eggs because they know deep down that they ought to care more about Jesus, but truthfully, they'd really rather just avoid the issue altogether because they know what some of us in the church sometimes actually miss, that true faith is costly. Abraham Joshua Heschel says, God is of no importance unless he is of supreme importance, by which he means to say that by his very nature, God demands that we make a decision about him. God is either of no importance at all, because he doesn't exist, or he's the God of the deist who just created things and then stepped out of the picture, or he's of supreme importance. If he exists, he's of supreme importance, infinite importance. If God is there and does care, we must, by definition, he must be the organizing principle of all of our lives and all of reality. And that is a really inconvenient truth for someone who rather enjoys being in charge of their own life enjoys being in charge of their own future, their own finances, their own family, their own Sunday mornings. But the Bible makes it clear there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There's no room for ambivalence. Jesus himself says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. The message translation reads, this is war and there is no neutral ground. If you're not on my side, you're the enemy. If you're not helping, you're making things worse. Jesus says in Luke 9, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. He says, you either stand with me or you have no share with me. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's really that simple, friends. Sometimes we overcomplicate the situation. Jesus just makes it very simple for us. He doesn't have a lot of nuanced categories for the diehard Christians versus just regular church attenders. 
the hellishly rebellious apostates versus generally good folk who just you know, would say church isn't for me or whatever that means. It's just not that complex for Jesus. There's really two types of people. It's cut and dry. You're either with me or you're against me. You either trust in me and, and, and have been saved or you have faith in something else and you're condemned. So friends, if you're here this morning and you've been trying to balance on that fence of ambivalence and not be forced to make a decision and come down on one side or the other. I just want to empathize with you (laughs) because I was there for a long time uh, in my life, personally. And can I just tell you for what it's worth, he's worth it. Jesus is worth it. He's better than whatever you're weighing on the other side of the fence, whatever you're, you're trying to balance the scales against, he's worth it. Pilate's ambivalence is fueled by his desire, in verse 15, to satisfy the crowd. Proverbs 29, 25 reminds us that the fear of man lays a snare. Pilate fell into the trap of fearing man more than he feared God. If the majority of the crowd had cheered, release him, release him, Pilate would have happily freed Jesus. And if cultural Christianity was still a thing in St. Louis, and most people still attended church simply because that's what you do on Sundays, like 25 years ago, so would your neighbors. They're not bad people. They just want to fit in. They want to be normal. But truth is not democratic. And there's no neutrality with Jesus. John MacArthur says, though it seemed as if Christ were on trial before Pilate, in reality, the Roman governor was on trial before the Son of God. And friends, every one of us today stands on trial. Who do you say that Jesus is? What will you do with the one they call the King of the Jews? Pilate articulates the very question that we must answer for ourselves this morning. Get off the fence. Come join us. There's no neutral ground. The second response to the cross is derision. Derision. At least these people have picked their side. (laughs) We'll give that much to them. In verses 16 through 20 and 29 through 32, we see four different groups of people, actually. The soldiers first, then the passers-by at the foot of the cross. Thirdly, the chief priests and scribes who mock him. And finally, even his fellow sufferers on either cross reviled him. Derision is defined as contemptuous ridicule or mockery, scorn. And some people today really hate Jesus. Their rejection of him is overt, It's bold-faced, and it's unapologetic. The reason for their contempt might vary. Maybe they've never forgiven God for taking their mother to cancer when they were younger. Maybe they hate the church for covering over years and years of sexual abuse, and they see Jesus as just an extension of that. Maybe they hate Christians for hating them. They feel judged and condemned because they're gay or sympathetic, know someone who is, or whatever the case may be. There's all any number of reasons that someone might hate Jesus, but I suspect that whatever the reason, we all know someone in this category, don't we? Maybe it's you. I don't want to be so naive as to think that everyone is here this morning because they love Jesus. 
You might be here because you've got a bone to pick with him. We're glad you're here. (laughs) I'm glad you're here. Be encouraged. Even Jesus himself cries out on the cross in verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that's encouragement to those of us whose faith isn't always as unshakable as we'd like it to be. I can empathize with you too. But if we dig deep enough in the heart of every mocker, every scoffer, every hardened skeptic, I think what we'll find is a profound woundedness. These people have been deeply hurt by the church, by a Christian, maybe from their perspective by God himself. And our response as believers, as maybe the only Christian influence in their entire life, should be the very same response that Jesus himself models for us in Luke 23, 34, to his own scoffers when he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, these people don't know what they're doing. I know that it's frustrating. You've you've prayed for them for years. You've been nothing but kind to them. It's so easy for you to see why God has allowed them to go through this difficulty because he wants to drive them to their knees so they have nowhere to turn but to him. The only one who can help them is the very one they're rejecting, and yet they don't know what they're doing. Jesus looks on his scoffers with compassion not with frustration or anger, but with sadness. With sadness because he sees them as they are, utterly lost, like sheep without a shepherd. These people don't want to be miserable. They don't want to go through life without hope, without eternal purpose. They just don't know any better. And unfortunately, we know Biblically, that that's not an excuse for their rejection and that scoffers will one day be called to answer for their rejection, for their derision, if they don't first see the light and repent and turn to Christ in faith. But what I want to remind us of this morning is that what they don't need from us is one more reason to hate God, to hate the church, to hate Christians, because we meet their hostility and their anger with our own judgment and condemnation and unhelpful Facebook replies. We need to remember they don't know what they're doing. They truly don't know the one they are rejecting. That's the problem, right? If they knew the one that, if they knew Jesus, if they knew him like you and I know him, they couldn't hate him, right? They'd know that he's, the pro- he's not the problem, he's the answer. But the best way that we can help show them that is by showing them the very same compassion and love that Jesus showed for his scoffers and his haters. The third reaction to the cross is support. This is the example of Simon of Cyrene in verse 21. We hear the soldiers compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross. Now, church tradition has built up sort of legendary addendums to Simon's story. But all we hear of Simon, biblically, 
is that he was compelled by the soldiers, read at the tip of their spear, to help carry Jesus' cross. Not because they cared about Jesus, but they were getting impatient. And actually, we don't hear anything in Mark or any of the other Gospels about whether or not Simon himself actually cared about Jesus. So, we may run into Simon of Cyrene in heaven, we may not. And similarly, I think there's a third category of people today whose response to Jesus is that they're generally supportive. They like most of what he taught. Probably a little extreme on the financial stuff. But generally, love your neighbor as yourself, honor your father and mother, the sanctity of marriage. I mean, these are good moral principles. And most of those around us would say they're generally supportive of our Christian faith. They would at least acknowledge the massive historical impact on today's world that Christianity has been. Most of our schools and hospitals, the very notion of inherent human dignity and and basic human rights, these all come from Christianity. But I'll just reiterate here, Jesus makes it very clear that it's not enough to simply support him, to to generally approve of Judeo-Christian values. Jesus didn't encourage people to be sympathetic to his teachings. He called us to come and die, to take up our crosses, to die to ourselves in order to follow him. In fact, he said, if we don't, then we have no right to be identified with him in any way. So brothers and sisters, I remind you again, your your non-Christian friends need to know that their support of Jesus is not what he's after, and it's not enough to get them into heaven. Jesus does not need our support. He wants our hearts. He wants our lives. He wants our faith. C.S. Lewis said it best. You, you, You know the famous trilemma. Probably Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is actually who he said he was, the Lord of the universe. So you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come at him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Amen? The fourth reaction to the cross is spectating move a little bit quicker now. We see in verses 35 and 36, and we know historically that people would literally pack a sack lunch and come out to watch these gruesome crucifixions in the first century. This was before Netflix and Hulu. But here's Jesus bleeding to death on the cross, crying out to the Father in agony. And you've got these people literally sitting at the foot of the cross, watching on, and what's their reaction? Ooh, I think he's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. It's like they've they've got their popcorn. They're just watching to see if there's a plot twist at the end. Similarly, today, you probably know people. Again, maybe it's you, if you're honest with yourself this morning who love a good drama, a good debate, 
These people often get mislabeled as seekers, but they're not. They're not Joseph of Arimathea from verse 43, who is actually seeking the kingdom of God. These people just want to be entertained. And whether they come to church because the band was really rocking this morning, Scott, or whether they come because the pastor's so hip, it's a good thing I'm not. It should not be the reason. Or they always have a lot of input in theological discussions because the Bible's so interesting to them. Jesus is not interested in our fascination, in our intrigue. Jesus is not interested in being a thought-provoking topic of discussion for us or a service that we passively attend once a week. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm everything. I'm everything. And I desire, I demand your whole heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And I'll settle for nothing less. So friends, let us quit spectating. There are people living and dying all around us right now who don't know Jesus and they're going to hell. It's time to quit spectating. Get off the bench and get in the game. The fifth response is acknowledgement. This is the soldier from verse, 40, uh, verse 39. The centurion said, truly this man was the son of God. We're getting closer now to our proper response to the cross. And perhaps you've been taught that the centurion here offers the first true profession of faith in Jesus. And again, maybe he did. Maybe we'll bump into the centurion in heaven. I don't know. But the reason I say that I don't know and I'm not sure whether the centurion will be in heaven or not is because all I see him do in Mark's gospel, Mark 15, is to offer an acknowledgement of who Jesus was. The centurion simply recognizes Jesus accurately as truly the Son of God. But let me remind you this morning, friends, of James 2.19. When James says, you believe in God? So do the demons, and they shudder. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus casts out demons who acknowledge exactly who Jesus is, and they shudder. Satan knows exactly who Jesus is, and he's terrified. Brothers and sisters, our unbelieving friends need to know. Forget that. <laughs> Let's make it personal. Let's make it about, I, I think that, there are, I, I am confident that there are people here this morning, sitting here this morning, and I, and I have to be careful. I don't want to presume to know your hearts. Only God knows the hearts of each one of us. But I am confident that we have regular attenders here at West Hills who acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, and if I gave you a true-false test on the gospel, is God holy? Is man sinful? Are you sinful, even personally? Did Jesus die for your sins? You would pass with flying colors. You would ace the test. But I need to remind you this morning that God is not after your acknowledgement any more than he's after your spectating or your support. God wants so much more from us than our mere intellectual assent to some abstract theological doctrines. Friends, can I tell you in love that that is not faith? 
Faith is not signing on the dotted line of a theological quiz. That is not what the Bible means when it uses the word believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, what? Believes in him. We've cheapened that word in our English translations. We've made belief about some sort of head knowledge. Pistuo, a Greek word, is so much more than mental acceptance of some facts. It means faith. It means trust. It means betting your life on this thing. Giving your life to this thing. Your whole mind, heart, soul, and strength. Faith isn't a true, false, doctrinal quiz. It's a death to life, heart transformation by the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what he died to accomplish for us. And he'll settle for nothing less from us. And if you're here this morning and you realize that you've signed off on all the right Sunday school answers but you've never actually surrendered your life to him in faith, in true biblical faith, I pray that you would have the courage this morning to admit that to yourself and to your God. And if, if you need to discuss that more, please come find me, one of our elders after the service, your friend that brought you, your spouse, God is waiting. He's ready. Today could be the day of your salvation. Because the sixth and final reaction to the cross, I've sort of run out of time to discuss, is devotion. It's devotion. It's the example of the female disciples in verses 40 and 41 who stuck with Jesus when it could have cost them their lives to even be identified with him. It's the example of Joseph of Arimathea in verses 42 through 46, and Nicodemus as well, we hear in John chapter 19, who risked it all simply to pay a deceased Jesus the honor of a proper burial. That's devotion. It's Mary of Bethany who anointed Jesus before his burial, before even his death, in Mark chapter 14, who we preached about three weeks ago. So I'll just commend that sermon to you if you haven't listened to three weeks ago. That whole sermon's on devotion. But it's more than ambivalence. It's way more than derision. It's more than support, than spectating, than acknowledgement. Jesus wants our devotion. And friends, he deserves it. He deserves it because he was the Son of God, truly who lived to be our Lord, who died to be our Savior, who rose to be our King, to the glory of God the Father. He gave his life for you. The question for you and me this morning is, will we give our lives to him? How will you answer Pilate's question from verse 12? What now shall I do with the man you call the King of the Jews? What will you do with him? Let's pray.